This Thacker Slate podcast is hosted by Connie Thacker and Allison Slate, two experienced attorneys who believe honesty, transparency, and knowledge are key to achieving the best legal outcomes. A variety of topics, particularly those related to sensitive family law matters, are candidly covered by Connie and Allison in a way that's refreshing, timely, and practical for listeners. Okay, thank you for joining us for another Thacker Slate podcast where you can find us on iTunes, on our website, which is thackerslate.com, and on SoundCloud. Today, we are super excited to have Dr. Amy Baker, PhD, with us today. She is a national expert on children caught in loyalty conflicts. She's written uh, numerous books on the topic, including Adult Children of Parental Alienation. She is a lecturer and a coach in addition to conducting training around the country for parents as well as legal and mental health professionals. She's written dozens of scholarly uh, articles on the topic related to parent-child relationships. She's had the pleasure of appearing on national television regarding this topic with Good Morning America and CNN. She's been quoted in the New York Times and U.S. News and World Report, among other print. She graduated from Bernard College, and she has a Ph.D. in human development from Teachers College in Columbia. She's uh, had the privilege of uh, assisting or co-authoring or editing, as I mentioned, Adult Children of Parental Alienation Syndrome, Getting Through My Parents' Divorce, uh, Bonded to the Abuser, which I found to be an interesting title, Surviving Parental Alienation, High Conflict Custody Battles, and Working with Alienated Children and Families. Today, though, however, we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about uh, a book that I had the privilege of uh, listening to and reading called Co-Parenting with a Toxic Ex. And I find it interesting that so many books most people uh, don't complete, whether they're uh, fiction or nonfiction. But I have to say, uh, as a practitioner uh, practicing in this area for 30-some years, when I picked this book up and started listening to it and reading it, I did a little bit of both, I was just um, uh, sort of awed in terms of the things that I had been missing advising my clients about. This book sat on our shelf I don't know, for a couple months that we give out to clients, and shame on me for never um, reading it from beginning to the end. But uh, Dr. Baker, welcome to our uh, segment today, and we're going to talk a little bit about loyalty conflicts, and really, frankly, I was really impressed by that phrase because so much I hear just about parental alienation. So, Dr. Baker, can you tell us how you ended up getting into this area of of, uh, parental alienation? I mean, we all have stories about why we ended up where we did, but how did you end up here? Well, I don't have a particular story of a moment where I was like, oh, my God, this is the most interesting thing in the world. I, the truth is I've been studying child abuse my whole adult life. That's my focus. I um, have uh, done research on, uh, you know, uh, poor families and uh, children in the foster care system and um, all sorts of uh, parent-child relationships with a special interest in kids who are being abused. And at some point, I heard about this thing called parental alienation. I uh, did some initial research, and I realized that there really isn't much, this is going back in the early 2000s, uh, that there really wasn't much known about it. There wasn't a lot of research at that time. And so I did my first study to answer the question, do any kids who are alienated as children, do any of them grow up and figure out what happened to them and reconnect with their targeted parents? And that was sort of 
to me, the burning question. And once I did that initial research study, there was so much uh, positive feedback and really people telling me that the findings had meaning for them in the here and now, in the moment, in their relationships with their children, that uh, that really spurred me on to continue to look for, you know, what's the next research question? What's the next burning problem in the field that I can maybe address with the study? And really, it's just been one thing leading to the next. And, and now at this point, I, I've written basically eight books on the topic, and I'll keep going as long as there's something new to say and to study. Well, uh, my experience is that this continues to be an epidemic, even though way back when you talked about just getting involved in it. I mean, in the court system, we still see it all the time, uh, every day, and determining really who's telling the truth and what's going on is a bit of a a problem, and uh, it requires the professionals to be involved in the case. And I think your question or your answer to some of it of your research about do any of them reconnect later, I want to come back to that at the very end of this and save ourselves some time to chat about that and give our listeners an opportunity to do that. But talk to me a little bit about this concept of loyalty conflicts because I found that to be so sort of um, different than just calling it parental alienation. And it seems like then it's like on a spectrum, right? We start off with these loyalty conflicts and if they continue and they continue to migrate to themselves, then we get we dip into this area of, of parental alienation and And how do we turn it around? And so how did you sort of come up with the idea of loyalty conflicts? Was that something that you came up on your own or you heard about? And then and how how do they manifest themselves in the families? And then how do they harm children? Well, one way to think about it is that parental alienation is really an extreme result of a loyalty conflict. So loyalty conflicts can be any time in this case, a child, we're talking about loyalty conflicts and divorce situations, anytime a child feels a divided loyalty, love for two people who don't love each other, who can't get along, who are in conflict. It's like being in elementary school, right? And you have two friends and you like them both, but they hate each other. That's a conflict of loyalty. So uh, that's just, I think that's just sort of a, a, a more acceptable term there are times, you might know this from going into court, where, the, where a judge might say, I don't want to hear anything about parental alienation. And so sometimes we'll use the phrase loyalty conflict because it's more acceptable. Well, and I think that it really is, and I think that it's interesting from your from the book that we're talking about, Co-Parenting of a Toxic Ex, where you talk about the harmful effects that it has on children, increasing the stress and the worry and the pressure to choose between a parent and really the confusion of uh, what happens to a child in this conflict because, you know, we've got 52% of all first marriages ending in divorce, and then we have children that are uh, a part of those marriages more often than not. And then sometimes we have uh, healthy parents that just have these anger issues that go on and the jealousy and the sort of the the background that you talked about of what happens when people go through a divorce. And then you compound that on somebody that may or may not have a mental illness on one side of the case. And then it becomes this extreme mess that the court system really doesn't know what to do with. So can you comment a little bit on uh, some of the 
um, symptom, symptomatology that we would really see on what symptoms we should look for for kids? I know you mentioned like sort of a disrespectful manner. I mean, what are what are some of the things that lawyers and judges and parents in particular should be looking for to determine if we have uh, sort of this loyalty conflict even establishing or already in process? Well, what I, so I'm for our purposes, I will use the phrase parental alienation because that's the that's what I have studied, which is a you could say it's a subset or an extreme version of a loyalty conflict. So if you have a child who is resisting contact or um, extremely negative towards one parent, you know, the parent who's being rejected, um, is likely to say, I'm a victim of parental alienation, my kid is alienated, uh, because it's a, it's sort of out there now in the universe that that's a possibility. But, of course, not all kids who reject a parent are alienated. They're not even necessarily in a loyalty conflict. Some kids do actually have an affinity for one parent or have a preference for one parent, and it doesn't mean that they're necessarily alienated. So alienation really does have very, very specific signs and symptoms. And the way to think about it is if you have a child who's rejecting you or, you know, rejecting the relationship, maybe they're coming for their visitation, but they're spending the whole time in the room or on the phone with the other parent and they're really shut down or they're just not coming at all. And you want to know, is my kid alienated or is it something else? Four things have to be in place in order to say that a child is alienated. So the first thing is there has to have been a prior positive relationship between the child and the parent who the child is now rejecting. In other words, maybe if you have a situation where a parent was absent for 10 years and they come back and their kid doesn't want to be with them, you know, that's not alienation, right? That kid has been abandoned and they've sort of moved on and that happens sometimes. So it can't be alienation if there was no prior relationship. Right. The second factor is absence of abuse or neglect. So if you beat your children or molest them or whatever, and your kids have difficulties with you, that's not alienation. Right. Your kid is estranged from you based on your bad behavior. Right. And sometimes in the court system, we have a a difficulty determining really what's going on, right? Because uh, one side's claiming estrangement and the other side's claiming parental alienation, and we have those conflicts. But I did find it super interesting, too, to go through the emotions that you mentioned that parents go through when they're going through the divorce with the child. And some of those, just for our listeners, included jealousy, fear, guilt, anger, shame, sadness, loneliness, and this narcissistic injury that that you discussed. And maybe you can just touch on a little bit of those, because not only do we have the children going through uh, the, the, the portions of the divorce and those sadnesses and their feelings as well, too, but then we have the parents going through that as well, too, right? Absolutely. And those are um, the emotional precursors to a parent engaging in behaviors that foster alienation. And I would like to just for a moment sort of close the loop and go back to the other two things. I was saying four things need to be in place in order to say that a child who's rejecting you was alienated. So the first is that there was a prior positive relationship. The second is absence of abuse. The third is that the favored parent 
is engaging in many, doesn't have to be all, but many of the 17 primary parental alienation strategies. There are 17 behaviors that we know can foster a child's unjustified rejection of the other parent. And then the fourth factor that has to be present to say that a child is alienated is that the child is exhibiting the eight behavioral manifestations of alienation. So there's eight specific behaviors that only alienated kids exhibit. Even kids who've been abused by a parent don't exhibit those eight behaviors towards that abusive parent. Yeah, and I noticed that... I noticed those in the book, and and I also picked up on just a couple of characteristics that you named in terms of children, you know, responding in a disrespectful manner, responding in an entitled manner, ungrateful, and sort of uncaring, which I thought was, the uncaring piece was really interesting to me, because not only have I served as an attorney, but also as a guardian ad litem in some of these cases, and it really stuck out to me what you said in terms of the uncaring manner, because I see a lot of these kids that really just don't care about the impact on the parent that's not the favored parent, that, you know, they only seem to care about the favored parent. Right. So one of the eight behavioral manifestations of alienation is lack of remorse about the treatment of the targeted parent. So if you have a child who's been severely physically abused, even, that child will still, in general, I'm not saying there isn't an exception here or there, but in general, that child will show concern for the feelings of the parent who beat them or raped them or burned them or whatever. They might say, Mom, I love you, um, but I can't have you continue to hurt me this way. They feel guilty often when they set a limit with an abusive parent. But alienated kids who haven't been abused, remember factor two is absence of abuse or neglect, they haven't been abused by the targeted parent. Treat that parent so badly, they are so cruel to that parent, and they act as if Inside, some of them do actually feel guilty, but they act as if that parent doesn't have any humanity. And in fact, one of the things I say, sort of like a little pithy way of summing up alienation, is I say it's when one parent gives the child permission to break the other parent's heart. Mm. It's really the worst thing that can happen to you, you know, short of a parent dying, right? child dying, for a parent to have their child, you treat them as if they're, they don't matter at all, that they, the child acts as if they just don't care at all about that parent. I, had, I saw a videotape once. I saw this with my own eyes. A teenager say to her dad, you know, dad, it's like this. If I had an old watch and the watch died, I would throw it in the garbage and say, oh, well, that's how I feel about you. Wow. Died, I would say, oh, well. So that lack of remorse, that callousness, that's just one of the eight behavioral manifestations of alienation. And to be clear, being disrespectful isn't one of them. It's not one of the eight major signs of alienation because developmentally and just You know, even all kids, but especially developmentally, once you get to be a teenager, a lot of kids are disrespectful now. Right. 
yeah. towards a parent. So you can't just pick out any one thing. I wouldn't want a parent listening to say, well, my kid's disrespectful to me, therefore I know they're alienated. You have to have all four factors, prior positive relationship, absence of abuse or neglect, independent knowledge, not just your belief, but verifiable knowledge that the other parent is engaging in the 17 primary parental alienation strategies and the child has to be exhibiting those eight behaviors. Then you can say it's alienation. So I agree with you that the courts sometimes have a position of, how are we going to know? It's he said, she said, and everybody's claiming alienation. Right. But I think that's because the custody evaluators aren't applying this four-factor model. Because if they did, they would be able to detect alienation and differentiate it from estrangement. And not to get on my soapbox, but I do believe sometimes that custody evaluators and sometimes judges prefer to say that every case is a mix of alienation and estrangement. Meaning, yes, the favored parent engaged in alienation, but the rejected parent's not so great either, so it's everybody's fault. Yep, we hear that all the time. It's a hybrid, right? It's a mix. It's a little bit of both. Right. So the reason, this is my belief, the reason that that happens is, A, the custody evaluators aren't trained in the four-factor model, B, the attorney for the favored parent, of course, wants to muddy the waters, And C, the judges like it to be a hybrid because then they don't actually have to do the hard thing, which is to reverse custody and sanction the favored parent. If it's everybody's fault, then you can just leave it alone. Right. Yep. Seems to be sort of the easy way out. And unfortunately, these cases, you know, uh, take time and they take so much money. But we do see a lot of this claim that it's a hybrid and the custody evaluators not wanting to take sides either. This four cust- this four factor model, is this something that sort of you established or is it something? I mean, where did, where did that what's the genesis of that? Where did it come from? Well, it's a combination of um, my research with the theory of parental alienation. In other words, back in 1998, when the first book about parental alienation was written, the person who wrote it said it only applies when there was a good relationship already between the parent parent who's now being rejected and the child. We're not going to call it alienation if there was never a good relationship. And we're not going to call it alienation if the rejected parent abuse the child. So that's integral to parental alienation theory. So I'm just, um, the four-factor model, I think I'm the first person who called it that, but I really was clarifying the, the theory of parental alienation. Right, and it's a it's a good model to put together. And then, if there are um, custody evaluators out there listening, or judges, or or lawyers that even just want to get some better understanding of the four factor model, any uh, resources that they can go to, training that's available that you know of. So, so the first thing is it's all spelled out in my book, The High Conflict Custody Battle, and it explains to targeted parents how do you put together a theory of the case that it's alienation because if, if so it's basically educating the targeted parents so they can 
educate their attorneys. You can't just go into court and say, oh, my poor client misses her children and she thinks it's alienation. Like, that's irrelevant. You know, everybody cries alienation. You need to say, here's a four-factor model. Here's the research basis for it. There's lots of science at this point behind the 17 primary parental alienation strategies. There's science behind the eight behavioral manifestations. There's research that shows that even abused kids don't exhibit those behaviors towards their abuser. Right. There's research that shows that when all four factors are present, experts in the field are going to say with like 99% accuracy that it's a case of alienation. So there's science there. Right. And, so and I think... Nobody should go into court without armed with that information. Yeah, and I think that so many people do, whether it's the custody evaluators not being... Um, trained in that area or the lawyers just trying to do a little bit of everything and not really being specialized in parental alienation. I want to talk a little bit about um, behaviors that cause these uh, conflicts. And you mentioned in your book a couple of factors that I want to mention and then have you comment on. Sending poisonous messages, which I thought was uh, a clever way of, of saying that, you know, talking bad about the parent, interfering with contact and communication, encouraging the, tri- ch- the child to betray your trust and undermining your authority and erasing and replacing. And under the erasing and replacing, I really found it interesting about this name change. And, and I've seen this, you know, throughout my career and, and hearing it from the perspective of the of the book really opened my eyes to some of this you know when you've got a parent who gets divorced from you know let's call him bob and then she just starts calling him bob all the time rather than dad and then the children pick up on that and they start calling their dad rather than dad they start calling him bob i mean we see that a lot in the litigation so it, it you know it was a big sort of sign to me as i was listening and reading your book of like an aha moment of what really goes on with some of these kids, but these poisonous messages, let's talk a little bit about that and interfering with the communication and sort of this idea that you had where they're supposed to, you know, spy on the parent and, and gain, you know, some of the materials and keep secrets, which I also thought was interesting. We hear that a lot, too. Right. So when I did my research on parental alienation in terms of trying to answer the question, how does a parent do it? How do they take a child who has a good relationship, let's say let's say dad's the alienator and mom's the targeted parent, but it goes either way, of course. So how does uh, dad take a child and say, I know you love your mom, but I'm going to make you hate her? Right. I really wanted to understand how that happens. And so my research has identified 17 parental behaviors that over time, and it does not happen overnight, but over time, warp the child's understanding of who the targeted parent is. And so my research identified 17 specific behaviors that came up over and over again in all the research I did, whether it was talking to adults who lived this as kids or talking to parents who were going through it now. When I was writing that book that is called Co-Parenting with a Toxic Ex, the publisher said, I wanted to have a chapter on each of those 17 behaviors. Right. And the publisher said, you can't have 17 chapters. Nobody wants to read 17 chapters. So what I did was I sat down and I sort of put them in buckets. And I said, how do these 17 behaviors 
group together. And then, so that's what formed the groups of poisonous messages as one and interfering with communication as two and betraying trust as three, undermining authority as four, and I know I'm erasing and replacing. But it, it started, and the research is really on the 17 specific behaviors. And when I do my trainings, whether it's with lawyers or judges or parents, we all know some of them. Of course, saying bad things about the other parent is a parental alienation strategy. What I've tried to do in my books is, and my trainings is explain how does it work? How does saying, oh, I can't believe your mother gave you broccoli again, or look, you know, your dad's 10 minutes late. How does that have such an impact on the child? Right. The child comes to hate that parent. And so what I've come to understand is that taken together, all 17 behaviors, whichever category we're talking about, any of them, what they're doing, but especially the poisonous messages, the first big category, is encouraging the child to believe that the other parent is unsafe, unloving, and unavailable. Right. Yeah, those are the three things that you had mentioned throughout the book, and I found them to be very interesting. Yes. Right, because the essence of a secure attachment, and I got my Ph.D. in attachment theory, so this is like my orientation, um, the essence of a, of a secure attachment is when the child experiences the parent as safe, loving, and available. Mm. And so what the alienation strategies are doing is corrupting the attachment. They're, it's corrupting the bond that the child experiences with that parent. And once the child comes to believe over time through exposure to those 17 behaviors on the part of the favored parent, over time, the child becomes convinced that that other parent does not love them. Yeah, and I guess if you then go back to the four-factor model, you know, prong number one is the what was the prior relationship, and if the prior relationship wasn't safe and it, and it, and it wasn't loving and they weren't available, then I guess you're in that category, right? So it all kind of intertwines with the analysis, if I'm understanding what you're saying. Is that correct? Well, it could be. There are situations where a child will say, you know, dad used to be an okay dad, but, but now, you know, he's terrible. He's changed. Yeah. I hear that a lot. Like, yep. not necessarily denying factor one, but they are exhibiting a behavior that's consistent with, you know, behavior, um, you know, category four, the fourth factor, which is the child's exhibiting the one of the eight behavioral manifestations, which is uh, the campaign of denigration, which involves erasing the past. I know it's, it's a lot of factors and behaviors. I, I hope I didn't confuse people. No, I think you're fine. But one thing I, I do want to comment, and I know we're, we're sort of uh, running out of some time and we'll probably try to reschedule another uh, session with you because this is so um, interesting to me and I'm sure to our listeners. But when we first started, we talked about the fact of the research that you had done with some of the adult children and whether or not they reconnect. So I want to tie that back in and give you an opportunity to con comment on that because I think that we see that. And in your book, I, I, I did detect 
impact where you talked about parents not giving up. And so often when I represent the unfavored parent, they do give up and they give up for a number of reasons. One, it takes forever in the judicial system. Um, Two, uh, it is just, you know, extremely expensive. And three, the court never really knows who to believe. So sometimes they just throw their hands up in the air and they do nothing and they don't have any contact with their kids. And I, in your book, you sort of suggested, no, don't do that. Continue to have that contact. But I'm interested, and I'm sure our listeners are too, as to what, what did you find about adults after this process had happened? Right. So I would love to comment first on the idea of giving up because giving up has different meanings. So when I say to somebody, you know, never give up, that does not mean, I do not mean to imply spend your last penny and every bit of ounce or joy in your life should be sucked dry while you're fighting this endless, hopeless battle. Right. I do not mean that. Okay. Sometimes somebody might say, you know, I believe every day you're at a fork in the road. Like, do I continue going down a legal path, or do I say that doesn't make sense anymore? And there are times when it does make sense to fight in court because there is a chance you could win, or because it's important to show your kid that you're fighting for them, or whatever. Right. Then there are times when, you know, somebody comes to me and their child is 17, severely alienated, and the parent has no money. Mm -hmm. I say, you know what? Court probably doesn't make sense for you. Right. Once kids get to be a certain age, the the court is really not going to make, or generally is not going to make a seventeen year old. But in any event, it, your kids, the other side's going to run out the clock. Right. File a motion, and they file, and then there's a delay, 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 and then your kid's too old. Exactly. But that doesn't mean you stop trying to reach out to your child. That There's many things you can do, whether it's calling, emailing, texting, you know, going to collaterals, trying to talk to other people, whether it's the guidance counselor at the school or, you know, your best friend's parents. There are things you can do. Start a website which has poems that you've written to your kid, whatever. The most important thing is that your child doesn't feel that you gave up on them. Right. And that you didn't give up on the relationship. How you enact that has to be very specific to your situation, mm-hmm. to your financial situation, to your, you know, just the logistics in your life. Right. So. Yeah, because it's it's a battle, right? Being in that system is is difficult. So, yeah, I understand that. And I'm sure a lot of people do as well, too. Um, right. So I just want to be clear that I'm not saying you should, you know, continue to fight when it's hopeless or you're broke or whatever. But ne- I never believe in the goodbye letter. You know, if your kid says to you, F you, I hate you, drop dead, you say, I hear you. I know you're really mad at me. You're not so keen on having a relationship with me. I'm, I'm still your mom and I love you and I'm going to keep trying to have a relationship with you. Right. You get to decide if you want a relationship with me. At no point should you say to your kid, well, we're done back. Yeah. Or even the I'm here if you ever want me. I think see if you understand that the alienated child feels rejected by you. And let me pause on that point. Targeted parents believe that they are being rejected by their child. I'm chasing my child, and they won't spend time with me. Mm-hmm. Feel rejected. 
And we even use the term, the rejected parent. Right. But the truth is that the child feels rejected by the targeted parent. They experience that parent as unsafe, unloving, and unavailable. Right. Rejected. Yeah. So if you stop pursuing the child, then it reinforces the negative message that you don't care. Yeah, it sort of becomes like a vicious circle, right? Well, the question for every targeted parent is, what can I do to counter the poisonous message today? What can I do? And that may mean file a motion. It may mean write a letter. It might mean send a loving thought into the universe. I, you know, I couldn't tell any one parent what to do without knowing their situation. Sure. That's the question for the targeted parent. What can I do today to counter the lie that I don't love my child? Right. Can you comment real quickly on some of the research that you uh, did find of, was with these adult children? Were they able to reconnect with their parents? And then what kind of relationships did they have? So I interviewed 40 adults who self-identified as having been turned against one parent by the other parent when they were a child. So this isn't like a nationally representative sample of alienated kids. I only wanted to talk to people who had been alienated and came out of it. Right. It's a very, it, um, it, was, it, it was designed to answer the question, how did they figure out that they had been alienated? That's the question that I wanted to answer in that study. And were you able to... Of course, to... to be clear, none of them knew the term parental alienation. Okay. Ultimately, I sent them the book that I wrote about them, and they were like, oh, I didn't even know this had a name. I didn't realize anybody else had this experience. Um, so the main thing that I learned in that book is no matter how rejecting and vicious and uncaring and callous and arrogant, hostile the kid was towards the targeted parent, inside that kid wanted that parent to fight for the relationship. Hmm, interesting. I'll give you an example. One person I interviewed was a young woman. She lived in England. When she was a child, uh, her mom was the alienator and the stepdad. And every Sunday, the dad would come visit. He'd you know, drive his car over to their house, park the car, walk up the driveway, knock on the door. And the mom and stepdad wouldn't let the kids the person I was interviewing and her brother and sister, out to see the dad. In fact, they were sort of trained to be on their side of the door, inside the house, screaming, you're a jerk, we hate you, never come back. Mm. And eventually, he stopped coming. He didn't get any coaching from me. He didn't know that, that, you know, that he should still go. Right. So I asked the woman, when you were a child, what did it mean to you when dad stopped coming on Sunday? And she said, I was shocked. I had no idea he would stop coming. And she explained to me that she knew she was never going to see her dad on those Sundays. Her mom and stepdad weren't going to let her out. But when dad came and knocked on the door, for her, that knock was proof that daddy still loved her. Wow. So from the dad's point of view... Driving over, parking the car, walking the you know to the door, knocking on the door, not hearing you're not getting to see his kids, hearing them mock him, and leaving. He said to himself, probably I didn't interview him, but I can imagine he said, "Well, that was a failure. I didn't achieve anything. 
this really hurts. I'm not going to keep doing it. Why should I keep putting myself through this? Right. But from the child's point of view, the knock was everything. Hmm. So interesting. So that is such an important insight because targeted parents don't realize the impact of their little messages. Right. You know, and just as another example, I had a client who uh, was writing letters to his kids or emails, texts, whatever, and the kids never responded. And that's another thing I hear from targeted parents. Why should I keep texting or writing when my kids never answer? Yep, we hear the same thing. It's like I'm just, you know, know, whistling in the wind or whatever that expression is. Anyway, the the dad told me that uh, his kid, ultimately he had a little bit of a connection with them, and his kid said to him, you know all those emails you wrote us, Dad? We, we actually read them. Hmm. And so the point is, you make the effort to reach out to your kid, not because you know you're going to get an immediate positive response, but because it's, a, it's sort of a drop in the bucket in your favor. Right. Another piece of evidence for the kids, gee, maybe Dad does love us. Did you find that any of these kids um, reunited with the, you know, the unfavored parent later oh, as a, yeah. adults? Oh, yeah. O- almost all of them. In fact, I started assuming. And so I would ask the people when I was doing the interview, like, so tell me about the conversation, you know, when you finally reconnected. Right. And they, they had a range of stories. And most interesting to me were the people who said, you know, we just sort of reconnected. We didn't really have any big conversation about it. And I was like, what? Like, this whole earth-shattering thing happened, and you and the parent never said, like, thank God you're back. I missed you so much. And where the kid said, gee, that was a mistake I made. I'm so sorry. Some of them never talked about it. Very interesting. But only one person told me, I haven't yet reconnected with my parent, and it was the knock one. It was that Mm. woman. Mm. And I said to her, well, why not? Like, at this point, you understand your stepdad molested you, your mom emotionally abused you, your dad didn't do, you know, like she had the whole understanding. And she said, I'm worried that he'll be mad at me. He hasn't reached out to me in years. Wow, that's so sad to hear about these kids. Well, Dr. Baker, it has been such a pleasure having you on our show today. And let me uh, end with asking, what are you doing next? Uh, Do you have any training scheduled, books on the horizon? I mean, where can we find you and and what are you up to? All right. So um, I do have a website, which is just my name, amyjlbaker.com. And I do have a new book out called Restoring Family Connections. It's uh, published by Roman and Littlefield, and it's a book for therapists to help adult children of alienation reconnect with the targeted parent. So it's a series of 13 weeks of activities that a parent and adult child of alienation can do together because I've helped a lot of targeted parents over the years reconnect with their adult alienated kids, but the relationship is very, it can be stilted, it can feel awkward, it can feel like there's landmines, uh, walking on eggshells, whatever expression you want. A lot of times they don't know how to pick up or 
make a new relationship for themselves. If the breach has been, you know, let's say five, ten years, it's like, well, I know we're mother and daughter, but how do we relate to each other? You're now an adult. The last time I saw you, you were 10. Now you're 20. What do we, how do we relate to each other? Yeah, that's great. And I, I would really um, strongly encourage our audience to pick up your book. There's so much more in it that we were not able to cover today. But, you know, some of the topics in terms of help coaching these unfavored parents. And I'll end with just on a thought, too, that Dr. Baker does do uh, coaching. And if you are in need of that, you should reach out and contact her because I find that that's one of the best ways to uh, deal with these experiences is to have someone help you with with how to um, manage and navigate the experiences. So, Dr. Baker, we really appreciate you being with us, and we hope to have another segment with you sometime soon. So thank you so much. Well, it's been my pleasure. I'm happy to come back. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Thacker Slate podcast. If you have additional questions, do not hesitate to contact us at 616-888-3810 or visit our website, thackerslate.com, for additional information. 